every Wednesday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A show about endurance, human performance, and what it really means to feel alive and present. Presented to you by Javier Pineda. state of mind that is radically present where time becomes almost under your control. So you have this experience in combat where everything slows down and, and you, you've heard accounts of this quite often, right? Like automobile accident, everything moving really slow. Well, this is a trainable skill. You don't have to wait for a crisis or hope it's going to happen. In fact, these four skills that I talked about, breath control, the development of the separation from your thoughts and emotions and having a positive attitude, positive mindset imagery and micro tasks you train these until they become this one single thing welcome to another episode of the endurance cartel podcast i have the privilege and the true honor of having with us today mark divine mark divine for those who don't know he's a navy seal seal team three class of 170 nicknamed cyborg so Anybody whose nickname is Cyborg, you don't want to be messing around with, okay, first of all. But this guy was has been highest ranked trainee of SEAL Buds. He served nine years in active duty, 11 as in the reserve SEAL, and he retired as commander in 2011. His leadership skills in teams was so effective that even the government asked him to start creating a nationwide mentoring program for SEAL trainees, which SEAL fit is company that we're going to be talking about, came about. So in SEAL Fit, we Mark trains civilians as Navy SEALs and gives them leadership skills. So with this being said, Mark Devine, thank you very much for being on the Endurance Cartel podcast. It is really a true privilege and a true honor for you sparing your time with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Javier. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to meet you as well. Likewise. A little bit of how I came to you I had two people from SEAL Fit that were certified SEAL Fit candidates and they were they wanted to be on the podcast. And I'm like, you know what? I want to get to the source of who this guy is who owns SEAL Fit and speak to him rather. Not, not to belittle uh, these guys, but I mean, these guys, their resumes was just impressive and everything was just so appealing. But I want to talk to the source and it, I came to you. I reached out through Instagram and you replied back. But when you replied, I went to my boss at the gym, Donnie Raymond, who was in SEAL Team Class 188. So he, I asked him to verify your name. And the moment I said Mark Devine, he looked at me. He's like, holy shit, it Mark Devine. Yeah, Mark Devine. Do you know him? I mean, he's a legend. I mean, this guy's the, the real deal, man. How the hell did you get a hold of him? I just wrote uh, through Instagram and he replied back. I mean, it's, uh, it was easy as that. Well, this guy's no joke, man. This guy, and he went off and said amazing things about you. And I'm like, wow. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, I, I have to send him his monthly check. <laughs> <laughs> he said that you were the, I mean, it's like you paved the way for a lot of the seals and the, the way you trained, the way you were, you, um, you taught all these guys how to basically defend themselves and be true team members, true team players, you know? And so many things I wanted to ask you on how, first off, 
I read into a little bit of your history and it says that you grew up in a very abusive home and you went into meditation and from meditation, you went to the Navy SEALs. So can you kind of just guide me through that? And because uh, I'm having so much, uh, like a hard time understanding how somebody in meditation, like years of meditation, go to the, war, the Navy SEALs. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, where to begin? Well, I'll, I'll quickly tell you how I got involved in meditation. I was a smart kid. And I was an athletic kid, and I owe that to my genetics, right? Part about growing up in a family where there's alcohol and uh, and some verbal and physical abuse is that you, you, you tend to, um, it's got some pros and cons, right? The cons are, right, you tend to have pretty stunted emotional development because you, you know, the protective measures kick in and, and you um, usually suppress or repress a lot of the emotions that are, are happening because it's not safe. And it's a very much of a protective mechanism and it's well understood in psychology circles. And so for that reason, I got kind of shut down a lot emotionally, but the pros was it was very little you could do to hurt me, right? I was very physically tough in the sense of, you know, I could numb out pain. I could push myself and push through pain pretty easily. And so that led me to be, to be attracted toward endurance sports, which, you know, many who are listening are probably familiar with. Like, the you know embracing the suck of long runs and and I was a competitive swimmer and then I got into rowing these are like gut wrenching sports but once you push through the initial resistance and you have the you've developed a mental fortitude whether through sports or through you know a father who requires it then you find joy and bliss in that right and there's not an endurance athlete who doesn't know what I'm talking about once you push through the initial resistance you get into that flow state and you're managing your breath and your emotions and your mind it's really, really blissful and enjoyable. And then you might fall out of that and you have to get back into it, you know, d different thresholds. So I, I learned that very young without any instruction, just on my own. And I, and I would spend large amounts of time in the wilderness. I was in upstate New York, you know, lots of land around us. And uh, summer times we spent on a lake up in Lake Placid. And so I was in and out of the water, on the trails, in the mountain, you know, trying to basically stay out of the house. So that led me, um, combined with my intellect to get a, a position at Colgate University recruited for the swim team. And Colgate University is a, it's no slouch, right? It was a, you know, it's a lower Ivy school, at least considered that. And um, contrary to all the cancel culture of today or equity culture, it was a fantastic school, very diverse. And I'm very proud of been, you know, a student there. So I was a competitive swimmer. Then I got into rowing and triathlons. And so all of that kind of shaped my foundation, right? So now, of course, the military wasn't, even in my idea kit, right? There was no sense where I was going to graduate from Colgate or even high school and go into the military. In fact, military had a pretty bad reputation in my house. It was something that you did if you couldn't make it in the world. Uh, or like in my dad's case, who got drunk and drove a car into a fraternity house, he was given a choice to go to jail or join the army. And so he chose B, you know, he joined the army. So he had kind of a bittersweet experience in the military. It wasn't something that we were meant to do as a divine. And I had three, three other siblings and we were all kind of groomed to come back into the family business, which was over a hundred years old. And that was what we did. Colgate, I get an econ degree, um, senior spring. I start applying for jobs, having no clue what I'm going to do. And lo and behold, a company named Coopers and Libran offers me a job in Manhattan 
to be an auditor, but I didn't have any accounting degree, right? I had an economics degree. Well, it was part of this broader program that all these other big eight accounting firms are participating in where they were hiring, they were doing an experiment. They wanted to hire liberal arts graduates, send them to an MBA program with a, with a minor in accounting or a master's in accounting, whichever one you wanted. And so we were a cohort. We went to NYU Stern School of Business, which is a top 10 business school and um, got a master's in accounting. And then I you know, transferred and got an MBA in finance. So that was uh, four years. So four years, I went to New York. I worked for Coopers and Librarian and became a certified public accountant and got my MBA. Okay. So now I'm getting to the point where is key to your question. So because of my background in allure toward endurance sports and physical conditioning in general, when I got to New York and I saw like how difficult it was going to be to maintain that, and I didn't see a lot of healthy people around me, you know, and most of my peers and especially the older ones at Cooper's were, you know, fat, pasty, just what would you expect from a white collar worker? And I said, that's not me. Immediately, I, I said, that's not me. I'm going to maintain my physical training and I'm going to, you know, this is 1981. It wasn't like there was CrossFit or functional fitness. The, the, you know, the culture of fitness was very, very tiny. It was basically just running and maybe triathlons. So I set up a regimen where I would uh, go out for a run or a bike every morning. And then I would um, go to the gym for a high intensity interval training, which I didn't even know what that was, but that's what it was. That's what I was doing at lunchtime while all my peers went and had their high carb lunch. And, and, um, and then we would get off work at around five, between five and five thirty, And that was only because they had to give us time to get to NYU and to have dinner and everything. And classes started at seven 30. I looked at that, you know, when all my peers were going home and changing and having dinner and prepping for school, I looked at that as another training block. So what can I do in this training block? I don't want to go for a run again or a bike or go back to the gym. It's going to be something else. I don't have time really to go rowing uh, based upon what was happening in New York City. So while I was pondering this thought, one day I was walking home from the subway on 23rd Street. My office or my ho- uh, home was on 22nd Street. And I wandered past a um, martial arts studio. And it wasn't just any other martial arts studio. It was like the headquarters, the world headquarters of Sado Karate. And the grandmaster who founded the style of karate was teaching there, was the teacher there. That was his home base. And I walked into that studio and it was this massive 2000 square foot, beautiful wood floor, you know, probably 30 or 40 black belts out there training hard, white belts, and the whole, just this cacophony of activity and shouts. And, and in the center of all was this, you know, like five foot seven, just rock of a man. And he was different than anybody I'd ever seen before in my life. Not just that he was Japanese. I mean, he carried himself differently. He had this this abject humility, this spontaneity, this playfulness, this, this kind of hybrid between just total spontaneous playfulness where he would just crack up at the moments, you know, someone said something funny to also being utterly serious and like, don't fuck with me attitude. And I was like, how do those coexist, right? I'd never seen that before and that playfulness, spontaneity and lightness, but with deadly seriousness. And I was like, I really, really need to do this. And so I signed up on the spot. Now, what does this have to do with meditation? Well, Warrior traditions, especially the Eastern traditions, um, tend to, the good ones, the legitimate ones, or the authentic ones, braid meditation and the mental development and spiritual development with the physical training. A lot of that's gotten lost in, in the West because of our competitive individualistic nature. 
And so, um, in fact, the reason that Nakamura started this program, this Sado, was because he was brought to America to be the head instructor for a program called Kokenshai. And Kokenshai was a, uh, founded by a guy named Masoyama, who was a big ego and uh, incredibly intense, strong martial artist. Like he was famous for cutting the horn off of a charging bull with his hand. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like why? Who does that? How do you do that? Exactly. And that would, that would be what the yogis would call a city, a special, a special skill that's developed over years and years and years of practice. And I saw Nakamura with these special skills. I saw him five blocks of ice, each block, you know, eight, maybe 10 inches thick with a couple pieces of wood between them. Five of them stacked up. I saw him break that with his, like split them all down the middle with his head, with one like whack head thrust. And he was fine. If you and I tried that, we would be dead. So, so I saw that a human being through discipline training could develop their body and mind to do pretty extraordinary things. And I was intrigued by that. My ego at the time was intrigued by that, but I also was intrigued at more of a kind of a sensitive being level about just the way this man carried himself. Because in spite of all these skills and, and his accomplishments, he was utterly humble. Like it, he, it's almost like he took no personal credit for any of it. One day, a couple of weeks into my training, and here I am, a brand new white belt, I, I stuck around on Thursday night to watch the black belt class. And the black belt, again, had 30, 40, 50 people in it. He had hundreds of thousands of students worldwide. A lot of them would come, and we met people from all over the world when they would come to home base to train. It's a really great experience. And um, after the black belt class, the lights went out in most of the dojo. People were kind of filtering out, and a small number of students aggregated in this corner which had kind of a cutout and they were started to pull out these wooden benches. And so I asked someone, I said, what's going on over there? And they said, Oh, that's the Zen class. I said, what's Zen? And they said, well, yeah, it's meditation. You know, go, you have to look it up, but this meditation, you know? So I went to the library and I got what I've asked about Zen. And I got this book called Zen mind beginners mind by this guy named Suzuki. And I started devouring that. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Like, holy shit. It exposed me to a whole new world. And I went back the next week and I asked Mr. Nakamura if I could join that class. I expected him to say, no, it's only for black belts. But he said, sure. And I was the only white belt. And there were only about 12 other students. So Javier, I started to, to sit in those long uh, sessions, an hour long of meditation and then a little Zen talk afterwards. And um, honestly, I believe because of my familiarity with being alone in the woods, in nature, and also you know being alone in long endurance activities, my mind had been conditioned to be able to, to sit in silence and to be able to um, do the practice, at least rudimentarily, without quitting. And also, I trusted Nakamura so much. And when he would, you know, when anyone expressed frustration, you know, he said that you can't look at meditation like a physical training thing where you're, you're looking for outer signs of progress. There's no there there. You just have to be patient and just do the practice and the fruits will reveal themselves to you. In other words, you can't be goal-oriented when it comes to meditation. And so I, I, I tried to understand him and just set aside any goals or try to like, you know, any thoughts of, you know, I'm going to have this in, instantaneous enlightenment experience or even understanding what that was. And I just kind of surrendered to just, just doing this. And I started to do it every day in the morning for 20 minutes in the morning after my runs. 
So here I am at 21, 22 years old, and I'm meditating every morning after a run. I'm going to karate. I'm going to the gym at lunchtime. I'm going to karate five times a week in the evening. We meditate a little bit before and after each class. Thursday night, I'm doing these long meditation sits. And then twice a year, we would go to the Zen Mountain Monastery for four or five days where we combined karate and meditation with the Zen monks. And that was up in Woodstock, New York. How many hours a day of meditation? A minimum 20 minutes a day, and then some days, hour to an hour and a half. And sometimes on weekends, I would do an hour or just do a couple times. And that lasted for four years. During that time, everything changed, right? The first change was that the time on the bench created this, this capacity for me to distance myself from my thoughts and emotions, and to be able to, to examine them or look at them. And, and that's when I first saw the story, you know, like all the details of the story that had been trained into my mind and body, the story of my family and, and their desires and beliefs for me and for all the family and how that is passed down generationally and the story of my culture and growing up in a small town, New York, which had led me to feel kind of incompetent and, and not very, you know, um, cosmopolitan or, or not knowing the ways of the world, right? Because I grew up in a town with 375 people. I saw those stories for what they were, you know, it's just, just a story. And I saw the story of the, the divines are business people and marketing this MBA, CPA, and all this foundational work experience is going to be really good so that I can go back and lead the family business. I saw that as a story. So I started to question my stories. First, the overarching story, and then the, the subplots, right? That had kind of led up to that. And uh, I and also part of the question was, is this story right for me? Does this feel right? Is this, is this, is this my, what I'm meant to do in this life of mine? And I got this sensation, this feeling that it wasn't right. I was just blindly doing it. I was goal oriented. You know, I was goaling for my PhD, or not my PhD, but my MBA and my CPA and goaling to get promoted and get the money. And, and all was that had been training, right? And when I stopped and looked when I stopped and sat down and, and sat in silence and you know just slowed everything down, I could see that as just a story. And so I I started to ask different and better questions. If not that, then what is my place on this planet? What's my energy telling me, you know, I want to do or I need to do? And so I started asking that question and I would, you know, over time I was able to drop into real stillness, you know, where I stopped efforting, trying to control my mind, trying to not think, trying, you know, all that trying leads ultimately to exhaustion and you just stop trying and, and that's when you can drop off into real meditation and and when you do that you bring little gifts back you know little gems back and so when you ask ask a question with intention before the meditation and you do happen to be lucky enough to drop off into one of those moments oftentimes you come back with an answer or a pointer and what i kept coming back with was this sense of being a warrior and that was meant to be a warrior and here I was working on becoming a CPA. And I was like, am I supposed to be a warrior as a CPA? I mean, I, I suppose it's possible, but I didn't feel that was my path. So I started to ask, what kind of warrior? How can I be, how could I serve as a warrior? And right around the time that I started asking that question, synchronicity kicked in because I was getting close, right? And so the universe wanted to help me out, I think. And uh, once again, on a pondering walk home from work, you know, between my uh, work, karate and school, I stumbled across a Navy recruiting office and I used to like taking different routes all the time just to see what's going on in New York. You know, you could, you could literally take Smart. a different route every day and yep. stumble across something different. <laughs> and on this, uh, there was a poster facing out toward the street and it said, be someone special 
across the top and it had, I didn't know at the time, but Navy SEALs doing cool Navy SEAL shit on this poster. I was just transfixed. I looked at that and I said, holy shit, that's it. That's how I'm supposed to be a warrior. And I went back in the next day and I said, what is those guys in that poster? Who are they? And they're like, oh, those guys are Navy SEALs. You don't want to be one of them. (laughs) I said, I think I do. Tell me more. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, I think I was tapping into, you know, the, the, the warrior tradition of these Eastern authentic Eastern arts combined hard physical training with meditation. And the meditation was so you could find that stillness in the action, right? Cause in the stillness, if your mind is clear and you're in a fight, you're not going to be thinking about the next move. You're going to be spontaneously acting and that acting, and they have a word for that. It's called Shibumi spontaneous perfection. Right. And so but that comes not from your thinking mind. It comes from, you know, the pure consciousness flowing through you. So you've got to get your mind out of the way. And that's what meditation does. A good meditation practice, well-constructed, will get the mind out of the way to get you to experience your true nature. And that's what was happening to me in these four years that I meditated. So here we are. I went to New York in November, uh, I'm sorry, like May of 1985, November of 1989, Four years and a few months later, I got my MBA. I got my certified public accountancy, literally the certificates in the mail. I tested and passed my first degree black belt. And then I turned my back and walked away from all of it and went to officer candidate school. And then I went to SEAL training uh, four months later, 1990. That's a long-winded story. Sorry it took so no, long. No, 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 no. I have a lot of questions about that story. First off, because I relate to you in so many in so many ways, Mark. I relate to you with that I, I guess as I mean I wouldn't say any our generation. I was just saying Nikolai how our generation of seventies and eighties kids we grew up in a in very fucked up environments. <laughs> I and it, everybody just, does I guess which is why we're called the lost generation. I mean, in a way, we're I mean our parents just all right get out and just come back and if you're alive you're good. Here's dinner. Yeah, no internet, no TV, very little Nothing. TV. We had three channels. And no freaking helmets when you go out biking or any of that sort. Yeah, yeah, climbing trees, building forts, make being come reckless. back with a broken arm and or shit. It's like what happened to you? It's like just walk it off, and then it's <laughs> it's just we. In a way, that was awesome because we became really adventurous and we weren't risk averse like everyone is today. I and and I and and I feel that in a way it was a blessing in disguise because I feel that this is what actually got us to be better in a way. We we this generation itself has looks looks for things, keeps hunting and hunting and hunting and hunting until it finds something. So, but my my experience is very similar to yours in growing up in a very physical and emotional abusive home that I also swam. I never, and I always was going with the wishes of what my parents wanted to do for me, but I never quite got into meditation up until just recent, honestly. And once I found meditation, it has given me such clarity in the way I think, the way I do things. I see myself pausing more and just kind of rethinking more things. But before that, I can see how scattered my brain was. I mean, I can tell when I'm not meditating and meditating. When I'm not meditating, I'm just going off and just running red lights almost. But when I'm meditating, man, I mean, I'm going at speed limits. I'm 
somebody flips me off and I'll wave back in a very happy tone face. And, but it's, it's, it's a true change. And it's, like I said, it's, it's, um, it's a very welcoming feeling. But my question to you is once you went against your parents kind of wishes of who, I mean, you wanted, you got the degree and everything. So this is what they wanted in a way. It's here's like, here, here you go pops or here's my degree. Now I'm just going to uh, be in the Navy kind of way. Yeah. They were not happy, but you know, here I was 25 at the time and you know, I'm an adult and that, you know, it's nothing. I got to that point where, you know, I didn't deliberately want to disappoint them, but I recognized that I had to live my life and not their life. And so I would deal with whatever consequences, but I had to, you know, and, and honestly, it took some time to get to this because, you, you know, your conditioning is pretty, pretty deep, especially when there's a codependence of a, of a dysfunctional mm. family, right? One yeah. of the outcomes of that, and some listeners will understand this and others won't, but you, you tend to become very codependent because you're taught to take care of them as opposed to take care of your own needs. Your own needs are secondary. And so I had to get through that and the meditation really helped me. This is all pre-therapy. I hadn't ever considered therapy. Now that came later, right? When right. I when I joined the SEALs, I graduated SEAL training. I went through SEAL training class 170. There were 185 badasses standing with me the first day. And I was looking up and down the line. I'm like, holy cow, some of these guys are just beasts. And um, at the end of training, nine months later, there were 19 of us. All the beasts had quit. And even the 19 of us, you know, of course I was a beast. I was nicknamed Cyborg. Actually, that that came after Buds. So funny. Uh-huh. Um, no, it actually came during Buds, but um, I was number one in my class. That was the honor man of my class. And my entire boat crew, which of six others, like we started in the first week or two together. They organized us into small boat crews. It's like a team. We were all standing there. So, so a full one third of the class was my, myself and my team. Very rare. I don't think it's ever happened before or since. It's very, it would be a, one in a million chance of that happening. So why? And the only thing that I can think of is that I knew the, the skills that I now teach Navy SEALs, I was doing them. Like I, I had a breath control practice and I understood slow and controlled nostril breathing was um, arousal control. It was able to, you know, it, it, it gave you the capacity to remain calm and clear under pressure because you're activating your parasympathetic. I didn't know all the details, but I, I knew that from my martial arts training. And so I did it every day. I also knew how to control my mind because meditation had led to this, this um, decoupling of my sense of self with the, my, the thoughts and emotions. So that, you know, when the instructors are there screaming in your face, you know, I, I just was distant from that. It's almost like I was looking at it from afar and it was quite humorous actually. And I, and I, so I just sat there and just watched what was going on. And I, I also, I was able to compare it to my father and I was like, oh yeah, this guy's got nothing on my dad. <laughs> and I know that they, you know, I, I was able to contextualize it because I was able to keep that distance and because mm-hmm. I was calm, they couldn't rouse me. And so I just looked at the whole thing as a joke, as a game, a playful game. Now I had to do what they told me to do, right? but I didn't let it get my, I didn't get drawn into their drama, get my emotions off. I'm kind of pissed off a few of the instructors. You know, one of them tried sure to, did. you know, it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to make you quit divine. So start right now with a thousand burpees. Well, that he called an eight count bodybuilder back then, which was a little more than a burpee. And, and I said, okay, you know, so I got this, you know, cause all I got to do is one at a time. Right. So I do one, take a breath, you know, 
say a mantra, do another. And, and I wasn't doing them slow. I was just, that was the methodical metronome kind of path, just like an endurance where you just got to take it one small piece at a time. And I got up like 800 and the guy just walked away. <laughs> you know, I've since done way more than that, you know, as my own challenge, but the guy got bored and he's like, okay, whatever. And so that was the second thing. I was able to control my mind and emotions, not through force, but by being separate from them and just watching them and not reacting. Third thing is, I didn't talk about this earlier, but I learned, I had a, a swim coach at Colgate who was a pioneer in sports psychology and, and visualization. And he taught me to visualize my swim race, right? Sports visualization, where you visualize mm -hmm. the race in your mind, kind of like Michael Phelps does. And uh, I had some great success with that after first trying to quit a couple of times. And that, you know, again, he, he, I trusted him. He asked me to keep going. He said, it's going to make a difference. And it did. There's a long story there that I won't get into, but I just know that I, I had a, a really profound experience with it. And so when I, after I went to the recruiters and we put a package in, you know, to become a Navy, you know, to, and it was going to be months and months and months before I would ever hear. And in fact, right. the recruiter said, don't get your hopes up, Mark, because you're coming from the civilian world. You want to be an officer. That means you have to go through Austria Canada school. They don't take barely anyone from Austria Canada school into the SEALs. They take them from the Naval Academy or ROTC or, or they bring them from the, they love and, you know, former enlisted guys who have college degrees to become officers because those guys already have experience, combat experience and operational experience. They make great officers. That's like Jock, my friend Jocko. He was a former enlisted guy who became an officer, you know, who was a phenomenal leader because of his enlisted experience. And he's a smart guy. At any rate, he said they might take one or two people this year. And there's a lot of people who want this. And I was like, well, put the app in because I'm your guy, you know? Right. Anyway, so back to visualization. So I was thinking, okay, I've got the physical training. I'm going to just keep on doing my running and my triathlon training and my martial arts. Maybe I need to go to, I, I signed up for a gym just to like bulk up a little bit. So what else can I do? Well, I'll keep doing my meditation. What else can I do? Oh, yeah, visualization. So maybe if I treat, if I look at buds like a sport and I visualize myself going through training and succeeding at a very high level, that could have a, a make a difference. The only imagery that I had, because this is pre any movies or TV shows about the SEALs, right. was the recruiting video also called Be Someone Special. And it had imagery from buds of people, of students going through the different, the three different phases. And so I inserted my, I watched that like 10 times. And then I inserted myself into that imagery, that moving picture in my mind. And I visualized it every day after my meditation session for a few minutes. What was cool about this experience, Javier, is I did this every day for nine months without any knowledge of whether I would get accepted. You know, checking in periodically, mm -hmm. being told, don't get my hopes up, blah, 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 blah. Well, about nine months into this training regimen that I had like really focused, I said, okay, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. Um, I'm going to get one of those two slots. Um, I'm going to do everything I can physically, mentally, and you know, emotionally to make it happen. But there's no guarantee. But I'm just going to pretend it's going to happen. And I'm going to visualize it happening. And about nine months into this practice, I had this overwhelming sense of certainty wash over me. Like it was already done. Like in the matrix, so to speak, I had... Mm -hmm already accomplished it. And several days later, the recruiter called me and said, Hey, Mark, congratulations. <laughs> you got one of the two billets. Wow. And I said, cool. 
He's like, you don't seem too excited. I said, I already had a sense that this had happened. He goes, man, you guys are really weird. You Navy SEALs. Like he was already calling me a Navy SEAL. (laughs) So back to uh, now SEAL training. All these things were stacking in my mind as valuable, not just to get into the SEALs, but to get through training and to become a leader. Mm -hmm. And so I brought them into my boker. I, I taught them how to do box breathing or controlled breathing. I taught them that the elements of mindfulness to be able to separate from their thoughts and emotions. And I kept everyone calm during the shit storms while everyone else is freaking out. And I said, listen, we just got to pause. Let's breathe. Let's collect ourselves. Let's, they want us to freak out and do the wrong action. So let's pause. We don't have to be the first ones off the X, but when we do act, it's going to be a more effective action. And so, um, and then also we talked about what success looked like and and that became a visualization. So I, you know, we talked about being there together at the end of nine months. We talked about what vi- victory looked like. So we were getting a kind of a shared vision of success. And we were aligned in that. And we were aligned in mutual support. We knew that, you know, together we were stronger. And that if anyone has had a weak moment, we had a, a, uh, a commitment to, to ask for help and to provide help. Whereas a lot of others... You know, the whole attitude is dog eat dog, right? Because there's only, if there's only going to be 10% of us who make it, then if someone quits, that's good for you. And so a lot of boat crews, you know, won't support each other and they'll even encourage people to quit and that kind of thing. And we didn't do that. We supported each other. And then last thing, and actually these four skills are, are the foundation of what I started to teach Navy SEAL candidates. The fourth skill was like, I knew that we couldn't be thinking about next week or the end of the week or even the end of the day. So I taught my team to just focus on the immediate task in front of us. And then even when that task got hard to chunk it down into tiny little goals, micro goals. So these became the foundation uh, we call now the big four skills, breath control, you know, mental control with positive internal dialogue and, and separating yourself from your thoughts and emotions, imagery and holding the vision for victory and then micro tasks micro goals. And, and that was profound. And we just crushed SEAL training. And at the end of SEAL training, back to the idea of therapy. So I, you know, I still needed, you know, all of this mental work didn't eradicate any of the traumas that I had gone through. And so that work started to happen because I moved next door to who be a woman who became my future wife. And just so happened, she was a marriage family therapist. Nice. (laughs) So she went nice. (laughs) <laughs> oh boy that, that came convenient <laughs> what a great combination right i now teach that you know to be a whole person you know we really what is and what does that mean it just means to be living the happy dream right to be to be able to really be fulfilled and have peace of mind and true like contentment and happiness that is beyond the craving and the striving and the neediness that you see in society the need to be someone special you know, I get that they were feeding off of that kind of desire to be special, the SEALs were. But over time, I realized that is all ego and that ultimately true happiness and peace of mind comes from taming that ego. And that's a common image in Zen practice is to tame the ego. And what that means is just get the personality out of the way. Stop taking so much credit for everything. Because a lot of, you know, what I found is things are happening through us, not by us. Consciousness flows through us and enlivens us and is us, which is why, you know, if everyone had this orientation, there would be no violence in the world or it'd be very, very rare. Of course, it's not, it'd be rarer 
if everyone had this orientation because it's mm-hmm. not common. It's not what, you know, it's not how we're wired. We're wired to develop this ego through all the layering of conditioning and then to, to think that we're the doer. We are the actor. We are responsible both for our amazing successes and glory and also our failures and fuck ups. And we take, you know, we, when it's the fuck up, we berate ourselves and we judge ourselves and we flog ourselves, which does no good whatsoever. And when it's a glorious success, we just puff our panties and our, we get our ego super inflated and we become all supercilious and arrogant. And, and then we pretend that we're humble about it, which makes it worse. Yeah. That's even and worse. so, Ultimately, meditation is the great humility machine because it it takes away this sense of personal authorship or doership and begin to get a sense that God is working, our consciousness or source is working through us. And that's really where I started to get, but it, but it was the ego, the conditioning is so deep, you have to do the therapy. Like meditation alone won't get you there. This is why some of the great meditation teachers said, you know what, after, after enlightenment, you got to take out the trash. And, and that means two things. One is nothing's changed. Life goes on. Doesn't mean you're some special exalted person. You're just normal. It just means that you've recognized that you're not the doer. But also it means you might still have to do some emotional work if you don't want to be dropping little hand grenades around, even with your growing spiritual awareness. And those hand grenades are the trauma grenades, right? That the, the way that you show up for other people because of the repression and suppression of early childhood traumas. And so really important if you want to be whole to decondition those traumas so that you can live a more integrated and whole life. And that, and that means just to live a happier dream, a happier life. That's, that's uh, extremely profound. And let me ask you, what was the first, that first time that you said that you were meditating, was it hard for you? Like for me, it, three, one minute sitting in, in stillness felt eternity. Then, uh, of course, I got it a little bit. Okay. Then five minutes. Okay. Now I'm at 20. But were you able to sit through a whole meditation session for 20 minutes without your, your thoughts just going a million miles an hour and then just saying, fuck it? Well, it takes time, right? So related to a physical training, like um, let's say you go into a CrossFit gym and someone's want to teach you a snatch and you never picked up a barbell before in your life, right? Are, you going to, are they going to put 135 pounds on a barbell and just say, go do a snatch? No, you kill yourself. You could break your back. Yeah. So what they're going to do is going to give you a PVC pipe and you're going to just learn the fundamental movements, you know, moving the bar from the low position to the waist position, then maybe a dip driving overhead mm-hmm. into this, a small squat or the dip position, and then just standing up. And you're going to do that hundreds of times. And then you'll take a, maybe just a barbell with some wooden two pound plates on the side. You know what I mean? You're, you're going to do mm-hmm. a crawl, yeah. walk around approach. Yeah. Well, meditation has the same thing. There's a progression to it. And this is a problem that's not taught. Like meditation is not taught effectively in this country. And this is one of the things I try to solve with my unbeatable mind program. So first foundational probably doesn't relate to you and your team, but a lot of people is you have to have a a healthy physical body. So you have to dial in your exercise, your sleep, your nutrition, because if you try to meditate and your body's out of whack, then you're going to get really distracted. And if you're overweight or if you're out of balance and you're under and you're, you know, sleep deprived, 
or you're overstressed, you're hyper aroused, then your mind is going to be either fatigued or it's going to be racing. And it's very, very difficult to get any progress in meditation when you're physiologically out of balance. So we say, first things first, let's get your physical being in balance. Now, it doesn't mean you can't start fundamental rudiments of meditation. And we do that with box breathing. So the first step while you're getting your body in balance is to begin a controlled breathing practice. Now, the controlled breathing practice is a one-two punch because first you just do it. We, we teach a, uh, I call it box breathing, inhale, five count, hold, five count, exhale, five count, hold, five count, all through your nose, eyes closed as if you're meditating. We have an app even. If you search for Unbeatable Mind breathing app or box breathing app. And um, you can set it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You can set it for three count, five count. You can do all sorts of different things with it. So what this does, this is an arousal control practice that I mentioned earlier, and it's bleeding off stress. So what happens because we're in a society where everything is so fast and there's so many uh, false stress triggers, you know, like you said, people flipping you off in the road, cutting you off, the time pressures of having to be here and the being there, the overcommitments with school and work and just about everything else. And so we're always triggering our stress response, our, our sympathetic nervous system. What happens then is quite literally the, um, the, the parasympathetic nervous system pathway, the neurotransmitters that activate that get, get atrophied and the sympathetic nerve gets kind of frozen on in a hyper-aroused state. So box breathing, when you breathe deeply, diaphragmatically, using your belly, through your nose, eyes closed, calm, it massages the vagus nerve, which activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And if you practice this for three weeks to a month, you know, three months or so, depending on the person, depending on how long you've been, you know, in this sympathetic hyperarousal state, you basically re-engineer that pathway to reopen up the parasympathetic pathway and it, and it bleeds off all the excess stress and it gives you an automatic stress valve release whenever you box breathe or whenever you do tactile breathing, which is basically let go of the holds. So five count in, five count out. We taught that in the SEALs in combat, right? Or in training, you go slow your breath down through your nose, five count in, five count out. And I taught box breathing as a practice so that you didn't have to think about tactical breathing. So if you do 20 minutes a day and 20 minutes the evening of five count in, five count hold, five count out, five count hold, you're breathing three times per minute. And then over time, you rewire your, your um, neurological pathway. So that becomes, so you naturally breathe at six breaths per minute. That's what I found. If, if you practice at three breaths per minute with a five hold and five on the inhale and the exhale, then you let go of those holds, you're back to five in, five out. And if you do the math, if, if each one, if each one count is a second, that's six breaths per minute. And now they've studied that and they've seen that that's actually the optimal breathing pattern for optimal hmm. health and physiological balance or homeostatic balance. So this breathing, you know, you start your training by getting yourself physically healthy and then you start box breathing. And that's all you do. And sometimes it might be six months or a year of this practice. But I mentioned earlier that, that box breathing is a one-two punch because when you breathe, what we also say, the way we teach it is just hook your mind on that breathing pattern. Don't worry about it at first, but just keep your mind hooked on that breathing pattern. And so this is like, this is what turns it into like my Zen 101 practice where that Zen practice, Nakamura said, okay, what you're gonna do is you're gonna inhale 
through your nose, exhale through your nose and count one. Then you're going to inhale through your nose, exhale through your nose and count two. And you're going to inhale through your nose, exhale through your nose and count three. And your goal is to get to 10. But here's the hook. If you, when you do this, you're not thinking of anything but that inhale, exhale one, inhale, exhale two. And if you start thinking about anything, you notice you're starting to think about anything, you got to go back to zero, start over. Hmm. And you try this and it's, it's, at first you're like, oh yeah, I get the 10. But then if you're serious, you're like, you're thinking the whole time. Yeah. And so you start to get really serious. Okay. I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking. And of course you realize, but not <laughs> thinking, thinking about not thinking is thinking. Right. And so it's like very, very much of a mind fuck. And, and you start to slowly eventually where you can maybe get to two or three without thinking you're like oh that's a huge victory <laughs> so what we say with box breathing is just start out with the rousing control don't worry about it but maybe after a few sessions or a few weeks when you're starting to feel good now now hook your mind onto that pattern inhale one two three four five watch every little detail and then hold your breath hold your breath watch every little detail exhale watch every little detail if people have a struggle with that we say visualize it so inhale, draw the left side of the box in your mind. Hold your breath, draw the top of the box in your mind. Exhale, draw the right side of the box. Hold, draw the bottom of the box. That works well too. And later on, we add a mantra, a positive statement, which then, you know, we call it feeding the courage wolf. It begins to override over time any negative conditioning in your, in your um, internal dialogue. Because positive internal dialogue is radically important for performance and for, you know, basically for life. So this practice is a one-two punch, a stacked practice where you're getting the arousal control, bleeding off excess stress, reactivating that parasympathetic you know, pathway, and it becomes a concentration practice. Now, concentration, be able to harness your mind to be able to radically focus on just this one thing is a prerequisite for meditation. In fact, Zen training was the concentration path, but it was just, the, it was just a prerequisite to be able to harness the mental power and focus it. And then later on, they would teach you turning that mental focusing power around, taking it off the object of concentration, which in this case is the box pattern, breathing pattern, and turning around and focusing that attention inward, looking for uh, your true self, looking for pure awareness or constant, you know, the, the, the essential nature of your being. And that is like, uh, ultimately what it really is, is awareness searching for itself through itself because there's nothing but awareness. It's just a misperception that there's a mark doing this work, but you don't really get to that until later on in your practice. You still think, okay, Mark, now you're looking for pure awareness. What does that look like? You can't, it's not the same as an experience with the mind. It's something beyond the mind. And we call that the witness. So when you find the witness, then it's just this pure state of being without thinking. So that meditation, true meditation is this, is what I'm talking about, that latter part where you turn, you know, the, and the Taoist would call that turning the light around. You turn the light of your attention inward, looking for that pure awareness that is beyond ego constructs, ideas about who you are. And this is what you basically teach the, the SEAL trainees and also in SEAL fit. So. Well, we teach them the very practical stuff first. Because um, we don't want it to look like a spiritual training program. And Correct. so we use that kind of term. We even don't use the term spiritual development. Our, our five developmental um, domains are physical, mental, emotional. Those make sense. Intuition, because everyone naturally would develop intuition through the development of the physical, mental, emotional, and through a meditation practice. But SEALs in particular really need to 
like hyperdrive their intuition. So they need to, we, we have skills or tools for opening up your intuition and being able to trust it. And then the last, instead of spiritual uh, development, we call Kokoro, which again, a Japanese term that means whole mind or merging your heart and mind into your actions. Yeah, it was, I always wondered what, what it meant. I mean, because I kept seeing in your books and uh, you would kept mentioning Kokoro. Um, I wanted to see what it meant. And it, you also said something in one of your interviews. I went through some of your interviews and you said um, people with backgrounds like it, that have been abused emotionally or physically are good Navy SEALs in a way because they become very hypersensitive and extremely intuitive. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that's one of the one of the pros, one of the outcomes of growing up in trauma is you become hypersensitive to your surroundings. Mm, yep. And so that serves Navy SEALs very well. There's a lot of special operators and military folks who are who grow up in traumatic families and they make very good operators. Now it, the trauma will always catch up to you or them or me if you don't do therapy work. And this is also why psychedelics has been, you know, really very effective and helpful for post-traumatic stress. The way I look at it, I try to teach SEALs and other military vets and others to be pre-resilient, to practice these skills that we've talked about now as a daily practice, not only make you extraordinarily um, effective as a leader and in life, but you also become much much more present and uh, clear about why you're on this planet and what you're going to do about it. And you have this contentment or peace of mind. And then when the shitstorm happens, whether if you're a SEAL, you're in combat or, you know, a, a major life crisis like COVID or death of a family member happens, you're very um, compassionate, but you're also able to process it much easier. And so you don't end up with post-traumatic stress and all the deleterious effects of, of um, event-based trauma. And let me ask you, while you were training and not to mention when you were in combat, just walk me through this so I can, I mean, visualize this because, um, because you can meditate obviously with your eyes open, correct? And so you're in combat and you're getting bullets shot at you. You're, you're in this, you're, you, you go into this trance and in, into a trance. this meditative state. It's not a trance. Or, or just, I'm, I'm just sorry, sorry, but a space. A state, if, a that, state of mind that is radically present where time becomes, um, almost, under your control. Okay. So you have this experience in combat where everything slows down and, and you, you've heard accounts of this quite often, right? Like automobile accident, everything moving really slow. Well, this is a trainable skill. You don't have to wait for a crisis or hope it's going to happen. In fact, these four skills that I talked about, breath control, the development of the separation from your thoughts and emotions and having a positive attitude, positive mindset, imagery, and micro tasks, you train these until they become this one single thing. And all you do is just with a simple, simple breath and shift of your awareness or your, your attentional awareness from your focused mind into your contextual mind. Um, and all of a sudden your mind goes into that flow state and everything slows down. And now you could literally, you can see the whole field and, and all the enemy soldiers, you know, again, it's very confusing at night. You know, most of the sealed work is at night and you're working with MBGs, but you can still get a sense for where people are moving and, and where the real danger is, where the threat is. And you can sense if someone's taking a bead on you and you can, you know, you, you got time to take them out. 
And this is one reason why SEALs, like, you know, we're such a tiny little force, like 2,000 men, and only a third of those are ever deployed. And in combat, you know, we, we had just an outsized impact. And we had guys shot, obviously. It's not like we're supermen. But, um, you know, same thing with Vietnam, every single war, you know, for every, for every SEAL in, there's, in combat, you're going to take out 20 to 30 enemies, soldiers. And that's, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating, but the numbers would, you know, probably bear that out. So why is that, right? Yes, we're highly trained. Yes, we shoot a shit ton of bullets. Yes, we know how to operate a team. And, th- and people would say, well, that's probably it. And that's true. But I also think that the ability to manage your mind and emotions and to click into this flow state is a big part of that. You're the first CEO that I know that actually it's talks in such a way that it's just, wow. <laughs> honestly, it's, honestly, it's, uh, it's, it's very captivating to me. Like it, all of this that you're saying, it's, um, it's almost like the matrix. Like you said, I mean, it's like everything slows down. So I have this three questions. We call this like the endurance corner in which I ask you three questions and, uh, you just, I mean, kind of give you like a wrap up and summary of uh, everything we've spoken about. My first question to you would be just like name like one key moment where endurance played a key role in like, in thinking like, shit, man, I'm superhuman. (laughs) Well, it's probably how I got my nickname Cyborg. Oh, I want to know that. Because, you know, we would, um, when I was at SEAL Team 3, my first platoon, Alpha Platoon, you know, I was uh, a third officer, meaning we had too many officers, which is a funny story in itself, because as honor man in my buds class, I was supposed to get my choice of SEAL teams. And because I was an East Coast guy, I said, well, I'm going to, I chose SEAL team two, four or, um, or eight, all East Coast teams. And um, a few weeks later, the orders came through and I was ordered to SEAL team three, which is on the West Coast, because the <laughs> right. that's when I learned the needs of the Navy Trump, whatever you think you're going to get, even if they tell you something. Mm-hmm. So I went to SEAL Team 3 because they desperately needed officers. And guess what? They had too many officers. <laughs> and so, so I got to go and be a third officer in my first platoon, which meant that I really was an operator, an enlisted guy, like a shooter. It was awesome. But so they put me in charge of a lot of training evolutions because I was really fit. I mean, every SEAL is really fit, but you know, I, I love fitness. I love PT. And so I would, you know, I would arrange these rucks. And, and back then we weren't like a rucking force. We are now, they, they have rucking and stuff, but nothing like the army, you know, and the Rangers, you know, they are masters at putting heavy loads on and like running with rucksacks on. And the seals are more um, ambidextrous and in and out of the water and, you know, just fit for all occasions. But rucking was Amphibians. new, but I love rucking. And so we would put these 50 pound backpacks on and, and, and walk in the soft sand for 15 miles or so. And I would just set this blistering pace. And what I was doing was all these skills I was talking about, you know, I was just basically, you know, box breathing or tactical breathing, saying my mantra, setting micro goals. And I would get into this wickedly awesome flow state within literally a couple of minutes and I could go forever. And, um, and that endurance training was amazing for me because it was just a, I looked at it as just a great way to train the mind, right? To, to refine these skills. And um, I think that any endurance athlete can use their sport to train their mind. That's why I don't, I'm not a fan of putting iPods or I, you know, headphones on and listening to music or audiobooks or anything. Now you should be, 
You should be managing your breath. You should be managing your mind. You should be working on your mantra. You should be visualizing victory. And you should be looking for that flow state until and, and, and a perfect combination of mental activity, shifting everything over to the right hemisphere, contextual mind, opening up the whole mind, the heart and the gut, listening, being super present until you can activate flow on demand with just a thought, just a couple, you know, thought and a breath. And, the, and a shift in your mind. And so that's what, to me, endurance training is beautiful for that, training that mind that way. That's, I'm taking my headphones off from now on for when I run. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I'm going to take them off now, yeah. dropping them. My Thank second you. question, name a person that inspired you just to go the extra mile in your journey and just tell us why on that person. Nakamura, for sure. Yeah? He's always with me. He became part of my mental mind gym board of advisors you know and i have this mind gym i set up i teach this to my students where you have this special training space in your mind and you go there every time you want to do your visualization work and also you can invite advisors in and some of the, they don't have to be alive they can be dead um but i i invited nakamura and he was like always there for me and i would sometimes it was just his example i would just look and say how would he handle this you know how would he deal with this Sometimes he give me advice. Like he was my first true mentor and hero. And so um, I never wanted to let him down. I remember um, literally like seven years ago, and this is 25 years after I left the dojo, after getting my black belt, I never was able to go back because, you know, we didn't have a school out here. We didn't have a Sado branch in San Diego where I ended up settling. But I went back with my wife and son and and just popped in just to see what the school looked like and everything. And guess what? There's Nakamura in the middle of the floor teaching his black belt class, just like the very first day. <laughs> and and a bunch of the black belts looked over and recognized me. And I recognized them. These are guys that I got my black belt with. And they came over and like, Mark, good to see you. And, and I, one of them goes up and whispers in Nakamura ear, Nakamura's ear and he stops the entire class. And he brings me out on the floor with my wife and son. And they're like, everybody. This is Mark Devine, number one Navy SEAL, and a very good karateka, too. And then he immediately turns to my wife and says, and this is his beautiful wife, Sandy, and his amazing son, Devin. And everyone's like, yay. And I was like, oh, my God, what an amazing thing to do. And then he went back to teaching the class. Yeah, it was just remarkable. So he was my hero. Can I, can I tell you a name and you can tell me if, if he influenced you in a way? Sure. Master Chief Mike Tats Martin. Mike Martin, of course, did. Yeah, Mar Mikey was my chief, my platoon chief, my second platoon. He and I became good friends. He was an old Vietnam era vet. Funny as a crutch. That's what Donnie said. Covered in tattoos. Just hilarious guy. We had a blast together. And um, gosh, a quick fun story about him is he, he had, um, in Vietnam, he had been in three helicopter crashes. And so one day, uh, one week we were doing air training, you know, and air training is like, you're jumping out of helicopters and you're fast roping and rappelling and doing spy rig and mm -hmm. everything like that. And, you know, chief Martin was of course supposed to be there. He's the senior enlisted guy. He's got to be leading by example, just like me. And he kept having an excuse, right? Oh, I got a dentist appointment or I got a doctor's appointment or, you know, this and that and the other thing. And I literally at the end, toward the end of the week, I said, I had to confront him. I said, chief, what's going on here? It's like, come on, the guys are noticing you're supposed to be leading by example. And he goes, cyborg, he goes, I was in three helicopter accidents in Vietnam. I hate exposing myself to unnecessary air tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I said, understood, but we're exposing ourselves. So you got to get on the plane. He's like, all right. <laughs> Mike Martin. Yeah, great. There, there are so many Navy SEALs, especially the enlisted guys who are just unbelievable, legendary, legendary people. Awesome. It'd be, you know, if you have a, any, um, the chance to know any of these guys, it's amazing. And they could be, you know, you could be sitting next to them in church. You just will never know, right? Everyone thinks that Navy SEALs are, you know, six foot three hero looking people. They're not. We definitely have those types. We have cyborgs and we have like beasts, but there's a lot of people you just, they just look like normal guys. There's a difference though, right? Their, their level of discipline and commitment and, and endurance and mindset. And, and just raw skill in the skills because the training is relentless. It's nonstop. So if, you, if you're talking to a Navy SEAL who's been in the teams for 20 years, that's 20 years practically of nonstop training. Now, there are some desk jobs and this and that, but, you know, and also then to deal with combat, right? Combat is no, and not just to deal with it, but to thrive in it, right? It's, it's really interesting. That's the most extreme environment you can, you know, imagine. So SEALs are a pretty unique group, and so are all special operators. So are all military members, I might add, and first responders. But you guys are unique in a way that I feel that you guys are like unsung heroes in a way. Like you can, like you said, you know, you can be sitting then next to church or whatever, and you would never know that these are one of the the best, best of the best. Well, and the SEALs like it that way, and we're trying to tuck the genie back in the bottle because especially after the Bin Laden raid and the books that were written and, you know, People taking credit, claiming credit that what credit wasn't due or allowing rightful credit to kind of take over their lives, which, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, if you're the guy who shot Bin Laden, that's who you are for the rest of your life. There's no chance of you ever growing out of that or being anybody different. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in my feeling, I would have, like, if that was me and, and I was able to, and, and I really meditated on it, I would be like, you know what? I may or may not be the guy because there were like there were 13 guys in my platoon and it was a team effort and the bullet could have come from anyone and give the glory to the team. Anyways, that's a little aside, but my point was there were a lot of books written. I've written uh, books about training your mind and, and how do you, you know, I've used the seal name in my book, the way of the seal and eight weeks to seal fit. And I have a program called seal fit, but I've never really, it's all been for the benefit of the seals to train Navy seals and to highlight, you know, the, the, the mental toughness skills, you know, and also to teach others in the civilian world. Cause I think, you know, ultimately people need this, right. The, our, our, our culture and our government trains the exact opposite. They train you to be weak and dependent. And so I'm trying to push back against that and trying to train people to be mentally strong and physically strong and to work together as teams, not individuals. But I've never written a book where I was touting my combat experience or, you know, telling stories that had operational secrets in them. And I think that's all bullshit. So the SEALs know that and they're, they're not happy with that. And they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle because the original and most of the team, as, as well as the other special operators, you know, it's the quiet professional that is, is the, um, the norm, right? And so mm. because of all the media attention that the SEALs have gotten, there's a few that just went a little rogue and weren't quiet professionals for a while. And hopefully we put that genie back in the bottle. Navy SEALs are just, I mean, like I said, it's unsung heroes, but you're absolutely right. A lot of people, especially after the Bin Laden raid, I, Navy SEALs were just skyrocketing. Names were just flaring left and right. And even Donnie says that there's so many fake Navy SEALs going out there. 
and yeah, one in ten that say they're Navy SEALs are not. It's crazy. One in ten. Yeah, I That's used to crazy. bust a lot of them because I I own NavySeals.com, and that was really kind of the first internet platform around the SEALs. And this is how I got that government contract to mentor SEALs because I was training, I was mentoring SEALs through the online platform NavySeals.com, and I, I always thought the Navy would come and buy it from me because, you know, it is kind of like the platform. Right. Everyone would find the seals, and I, you know now it's just I just use it for lead gen for seal fit. But um, we had kind of a, a a phony check service. It wasn't a paid service, but people all the time would come and ask, you know, is this guy legit? And I, and I had the database that was up to like the last couple of years at the time, and I would always check and be like, no, that guy's not in the database. You know, sorry. <laughs> and it got pretty sketchy at times. Like one time, I had a, a girl who was like she wanted to learn more about her father who was supposed to be this like hero in Vietnam. And the guy was a fraud. And so I had to really think hard about it. Like, did did I want to be the guy who ruined her life and told her her dad was a fraud? And I decided not to, I just said, I I don't know. I don't have enough information. You better ask him. (laughs) That is so crazy. That's crazy. Well, on to my last question. Um, so what piece of advice would you give our listeners, giving all your experience, everything that you have acquired so far, what just one small piece of advice you would give? Slow down and stop doing so much. Hmm. Decommit, yeah. declutter, slow down and begin to practice a box of breathing and your life will change dramatically for the positive. Well said, wowza. Mark Divine, Mark Thank you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you've done for our country, for everybody, for in what you're doing today. I I uh, must also say that one of my questions was why why uh, Navy women in Navy SEALs there are only two point eight percent of them. No, there's none, and there are none. Uh huh. And so no this is why I I I proof right, and it's like there's none, but the Google, according to Google, there's 2.8, but I asked Donnie and Donnie said, like, no, Google? there's no, there's none. You there's believe no. Google? Oh my gosh. No, no, no. This is why I confirmed it with Donnie. It's like, this is my, Donnie was also my confirmation. Thing. Yeah, no, there's zero, there's zero female Navy SEALs. They have the potential and the right to try, but none have made it. I'm not saying that none will, won't make it. I think there will be a female Navy SEAL sometime, but that's all, you know, you know, I have a lot of, that's a whole different discussion. I have issues with this idea of there being one or two female Navy SEALs because, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars of infrastructure because, you know, unless you're going to change culture that says those females can shower with the males and, you know, there's no difference at all in how you treat them, then I'm fine with that. And some cultures are okay with that, do that. But our culture doesn't do that. And so now you're going to invest billions of dollars of taxpayer dollars and create all these conditions for one or two female Navy SEALs. We already have females in the force, and that's probably what Google's talking about. There, the whole force is called Naval Special Warfare. It includes Navy SEALs. It includes the boat drivers called uh, Special Warfare Combatant Crewmen. It includes intel. It includes logistics, right? It includes administration, right? Stuff like this, cryptographers. Mm-hmm. And we have some extraordinary females who operate within the Naval Special Warfare, even at uh, Del- uh, DevGru, which is SEAL Team 6. So, why mess with 60 years of what's working with the actual seals in terms of the culture and whatnot? And so I, I do have issues with it. It's nothing to do with whether I think females are capable or worthy. It's just like there's some 
other considerations beyond mm. being a woke culture. You know, you could really, really fuck things up. And I think that using the military as an experimental ground for for social manipulation or mm. radical social change is, is dangerous. It's silly. It doesn't make any sense to me. Even though seal fit. You, you, I've, uh, I read some of your testimonies and some women do go to seal fit. Of course. We invite everyone to come still, you know, vast majority are men and we won't change the standards at all. Um, we do have different set of standards for women because we, you know, in terms of entry, but when they're there, you know, they've got to do everything that the men do. And we got some extraordinary right. women come through training and seal fit. No, testimonies are amazing. I mean, they're, you've changed lives and it's just, I mean, if yeah, seal fit training is is not it's the you know like our crucibles. We do a number of things at seal fit, but our famous uh, ones are crucibles: twelve, twenty four, and fifty hour event. The fifty hour event's called Kokoro. It's not just Navy SEALs instructors, you know, yelling in your face like buds. Like we teach deliberately, teach those big four skills. We teach how to be an exceptional teammate. We don't let you get through the event, you know, as a as a lone ranger. Um the whole process of both training and doing the event and what happens afterwards is a radical transformation. Like they, people describe it as life before Kokoro and life after. And um, we're world-class. We're, we've done over 60 events since 2006. We run three a year and they're just extraordinarily highly professional events. But if you're thinking about, if it sounds interesting, you know, you go to sealfit.com and check it out, but you're going to want to like, train for it and prepare for it. even endurance athletes ultra endurance athletes you know i've had uh, a, a multiple triathlete former nfl player say it was the hardest thing he's ever done and it was the equivalent of like doing three back-to-back full ironmans <laughs> in terms of the workload Damn. that's the 50-hour event so it's no joke but it's an extraordinary thing and it's not about the physical really it's about the mental and emotional and you know, the, the long, like people experience like 10, 15 hour flow states toward the end of it. It's incredible. And also you have, um, unbreakable, um, mind certification. Yes. Unbeatable mind. We, we certified coaches. Again, you can find out about that at unbeatablemind.com or sealfit.com. So we teach, um, coaches, this integrated development program that we have, which is the five mountains, physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and Kokoro, and a whole suite of skills around how to develop whole mind, how to, you know, do the meditative and the visualization practices and all that. So we have a, a certification program that's virtual, but it takes close to a year to do it right. We have a, uh, a course called the foundation course, which is 12 months where I teach all of these things, you know, through this virtual course, we have a um, high-end mastermind group where people who are like really want to go all in. And this is usually corporate leaders or entrepreneurs. And we have four events a year and we meet every month in a mastermind and we do all sorts of fun things. And that's all, all that information is available at our um, website or you can, you can contest us at info at sealfit.com. Mark, I appreciate all your time. I appreciate, like I said, every bit of every word that you've said today has, uh, has impacted me in a very positive way. And I really hope all our listeners, they reach out in a way that I mean, it's like, man, cause I want to go. I want to be in, in seal fit someday or any of the teachings that you do. Cause it's, it's been, I cannot tell you how privileged I feel right now that everything you've shared with, with me. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's evergreen, man. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'll put it on practice. It's stuff that you can put in practice immediately. And I appreciate that. 
And I know you're a busy guy. And um, thank you very much for your time. And guys, if you want to check out more from uh, Mark Devine, Mark Devine, you have your own Instagram, correct? Yeah, I've got um, at at real Mark Devine on Instagram or Facebook, uh, at Mark Devine on Twitter, and I'm on, on LinkedIn. And we have a YouTube channel at SealFit as well, which is good. And we, all my podcasts, I have a podcast called The Mark Devine Show, which is easy to find on Apple or, or wherever. And which is amazing, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. And my personal website has all that information too. That's markdevine.com. So you can reach them there and, or you can go to our show notes and get some more information on all the, that you've heard in this podcast episode. Also, don't forget that are to sign up for our Patreon. And we can always use a little hand. If uh, you like this show, just please share it with your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can find us. We're there. Just share it with your friends. The more you share, the more we love we get and the more listeners we get. So that's always a great thing. So please subscribe to our channel. And with that being said, we will see you next Wednesday with our following uh, episode. So guys, have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to Endurance Cartel. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, subscribe to the podcast and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Join our cartel by supporting us on Patreon and receive other perks. Hey, why not? Maybe even become a guest. Ah, I almost forgot. Join our website at endurancecartel.com. And if you like, leave us a message with a question or topic that interests you, and we may even feature it on our future episode. You can also find more information about our episodes by visiting our blog and subscribing to our newsletter. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Same place, same vibes. Be good. Endurance Cartel.